Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you confused by all the options in marking knives? Do you need to level the bottom of a deep mortise? Does the topic of sharpening cause your head to spin? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 33 of the show for August 29th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, Reagan Herman and Thomas Feller. Thank you both for signing up to support the show over on Patreon. And thank you to all of our patrons for your continued support. And if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So actually, some uh, some stuff going on in the shop recently uh, in between working on the uh, vanity cat or sorry, working on the, uh, the cabin, um, I have actually worked on and built a vanity cabinet for the half bathroom in the uh, in the cabin uh, if you follow my instagram feed you might have seen pictures of that uh, it's kind of funny because uh, we we're trying you know not to to spend too much on that kind of stuff so we i basically made it out of some big box maple ply and then the uh, the face frame and the door frames are just made out of some leftover uh mahogany and walnut scraps that I had laying around that, you know, I found some pieces that would be the right size to make the, uh, the face frame and the door frames out of. And, uh, so it's kind of a mix of woods, but, uh, it's all getting painted anyway. So at least the, the mahogany and the walnut kind of have a similar grain structure. Uh, so once everything's painted, it, uh, it kind of looks pretty much the same. You really can't tell that it's two different wood species in there. And, uh, but that's, that's just about done and that'll be uh, getting installed pretty soon. Uh, I'm also making preparations for a private class that I'm going to be teaching at my shop, uh, coming up in the middle of September. So I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, I've also managed to, uh, register for the, the Williamsburg working wood in the 18th century conference, which is, uh, coming up in the middle of January, 2019. So that's going to be a, a good conference. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that as well. So if you happen to be going to that conference, uh, definitely, uh, look for me down there and, uh, and, uh, say hi. So let's get into our questions for this week. Uh, first one comes from Bill and he wants to know about wooden plane throat size. I'm trying to rehab some wooden planes of different lengths. I have short, medium, and long wooden planes. All of the throats are too big, and so I'm trying to decide the size of the throat for, for each of these sizes of wooden planes and whether to put a new solo on or just simply a throat patch. But could you speak to the ideal throat size for a wooden plane at the different sizes, the smooth, jack, and joiner? Wooden planes. Thank you. Well, you might be a little bit disappointed in my answer, but I've never really found throat size to be much of an issue uh, with any plane. Um, uh, it really doesn't become a problem unless you're working with really, really, really figured woods that cause a lot of uh, a lot of tear out problems. But for the most part, if you're using a double iron plane, the throat size doesn't really matter. Um, I would say for a jack plane. I wouldn't bother fixing it. Whatever, whatever the throat size of your jack plane is, I would leave it alone. It, they're not worth um, jack planes are just not worth putting in a throat patch or adding on a new sole because the you know you're trying to pass through very thick shavings, more like chips than shavings, really. So I wouldn't bother with the jack plane. The joiner plane, you know, if you really want to put a new sole on or if you want to put a mouth patch in. Again, I would make the mouth patch, I would make the mouth, make sure the mouth is wide enough that it can pass the shaving that you, that you want to pass through. Um, you know, don't make it so tight 
that it's going to get jammed all the time. It really comes down to shaving thickness. I wouldn't say there's a an ideal size. It, it just really comes down to how thick you're going to make it. I would not make the mouth opening any tighter than, say, you know, a sixteenth of an inch. Um, you know, I would make sure that you leave plenty of room because, again, especially if it's a double iron plane, that shaving is going to hit the blade, hit the, um, yeah, hit the edge of the blade. It's going to be, then it's going to hit the chip breaker. It's going to be directed up into the wear, which is the bottom part of the, the front of the throat of the plane. And then it has to be directed up and out. So what I would focus on is, you know, don't get the mouth too tight. Make sure the shaving can pass. Get your chip breaker, you know, all smooth and polished up. Um, and get that wear nice and smooth and clean so that the there's nothing there for the, the shaving to hang up on so the mouth of the, uh, of the plane doesn't jam up and, and clog. And then for a smoother plane, obviously... Um, you know, wooden planes are no different than, than iron planes when it comes to smoothing planes. Um, if you want to use them for highly figured woods, you got, you know, a tight mouth can be helpful. So I would make the mouth, make your patch or your new sole so that the mouth is closed when the iron is first put in. Um, what I like to do if I'm going to do a smoother is to put a whole new sole on the bottom rather than a mouth patch. It's, I find it easier. And then you just chop through the new sole and you make that sole too thick. And then when you chop through, what you'll find is that the blade won't, won't project. It won't actually be able to go out through the mouth. Um, and then what you can do is to um, gradually plane the bottom of that sole. And if you chopped the new mouth following the existing wear, on, uh, wear angle on the plane... As you plane or sand the bottom of that sole down, you're going to make the mouth wider and wider with each pass. And continue to do that until A, the blade is able to project and take a shaving, and B, until the mouth doesn't clog. And then that should be the ideal, uh, ideal mouth opening for that plane. Our next question is from Rob from Oklahoma. Rob says, I recently picked up some Gaiacucho razor saws and listened closely to episode 22 on advice for successful hand sawing. Between your advice and having also watched some Paul Sellers content, I've become aware of how useful a knife line or knife wall can be. Even, uh, even Using even a cheap utility knife and combination square to make my cut lines has been extremely helpful with razor saws on the poplar that I've been test driving so far. However, however, I wonder if I might be better off with something a bit more upscale than a utility knife, especially for working in harder woods. I'm not a knife collector, don't even have so much as a pocket knife, and know very little about knives or their blades generally. What are some things to look for in a good quality marking knife for a beginner? Are there more common varieties of knife that work well for setting a kerf on things like maple if a high-end marking knife is not yet in the budget? So, Rob, the beauty of marking knives is that it really doesn't matter. Um, high-end knives aren't really – what you're going to get in a high-end marking knife like a, like a blue spruce – yeah, easy for you to say. A blue spruce marking knife, for example, or um, Chester Toolworks or, or you know, one of those really uh, – the more expensive versions is you're going to get a really, really thin blade. Um, and the purpose of such a thin blade is because some people like to cut tails first when they do their dovetails. And if you cut tails first and you make really small pins, then you need a really, really thin bladed knife to be able to get into um, the space between the tails in order to transfer the marks from the tails to the pin board. For me, that's not an issue. Um, I cut pins first, typically. And so it doesn't matter. I can transfer, no matter how small the pins are, I can transfer my marks with a pencil if I want, or just about any, I can get just about any knife in there or an awl. So it's, it's really not an issue um, as far as I'm concerned for me because um, I don't ever have to worry about getting a knife in such a small area. But that is something to consider if you like to cut your tails first and you need to and you like small pins and you need to be able to get a thin bladed knife into that space. Um, if that's not a concern to you, then it really doesn't matter. Um, the, the main thing that I look for, I have two different 
types of marking knives in my collection. The first is a, is a spear point. I do have a, a blue spruce. Um, and I use that pretty regularly. Um, it, it's what I would con- consider a single bevel knife. Even though it's a spear point, I would consider it a single bevel knife because it has a flat side like a chisel. Uh, my other marking knife is a traditional striking knife, which has a um, single beveled knife on one end and an awl on the other end. Um, and that's used for different marking and uh, and hole starting purposes. Um, the difference between my two knives is, the, you know, again, the blue spruce is a spear point, which means it, you know, it, it comes to a sharp point, sort of like an arrowhead. Um, and it has two angles on it so that the knife can be used right-handed or left-handed with the flat face of the knife being held against either side of the work. Um, the other knife that I have, my traditional striking knife, is essentially a right-handed striking knife. And what that means is when you hold the, the knife in your right hand, the flat side of the knife will be facing the left. And you put your work you put the knife, the flat blade of the knife, up against the right side edge, and that of the of the square, and that's how you scribe your line. Um, my preference is actually for the traditional style knife over the spear point knives. Spear point knives usually, f- for my purposes, um, the blades are a little bit too flexible. But some some people really like the flexible blade. They do make a really nice fine line. Um, so you know, I I pretty much use. The, my blue spruce knife and my traditional striking knife interchangeably. Um, if I had to pick just one of them, I would probably choose my traditional striking knife, but they can be difficult to find. There aren't too many people. There's no one that I'm aware of that's making them these days um, other than blacksmiths. There are a couple of blacksmiths that you can find that are still, that will still make you one custom, but there's nothing being made in common production um, in a traditional striking knife. Um, the spear point knives, you can find them from a lot of different makers. Now, the other style of knife, like a utility knife, like what you're using, or um, like a chip carving knife that some people prefer, the knife that Paul Sellers prefers, I believe, is also like this, is a double bevel knife. It's similar to a pocket knife where it has bevels ground on both sides. There's no flat side. The difference with that type of knife is you need to angle that knife in order to get the the sharp edge of the knife right into the corner where the square meets the work. Um, with a flat single bevel knife um, with a flat face, you can hold the flat face right up against the edge of the square um, and scribe your, your cut lines that way. With a double bevel knife, like a pocket knife, like the Paul Sellers knife, like a chip carving knife, um, and with some you know double bevel marking knives that are on the market, you have to angle that knife over so that you can get the the edge of the knife right into that corner where the square meets the work. That's really the only difference. Neither one of them is better than the other. It just really comes down to personal preference. So um, what I would say that is that if a, a quote-unquote high-end marking knife is not in your budget right now and the utility knife is working for you, Stick with it. Um, that's what I use when I'm doing housework and carpentry work and stuff, you know, where I'm not in the shop at my bench. Um, I use a utility knife and it works just fine. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So our third question comes from Jay. And Jay says, I'm in the middle of laying out the mortise and tenons for the legs and stretchers of a Rubo workbench. In order to install the bench crafted leg vice hardware that I've selected, it's necessary to cut a 1 and 7 16 inch deep mortise for the leg for the crisscross mechanism. I could do this with my electric router or Forstner bit in a drill press and then square up the edges with a chisel, but I'm not sure about creating a smooth plane in the bottom of the mortise. The router plane would work if the mortise wasn't too deep, but it only cuts a 1 inch, uh, the router plane only cuts one in, up to 1 inch deep. you have any ideas about how to cut a mortise this size with hand tools and make the bottom of the mortise smooth? So this is a pretty common question, especially for folks who are familiar with making mortises with power tools like routers. Um, you cut a mortise with a router and you get this nice smooth bottom to the mortise and it's everything is absolutely you know, machine perfect and beautiful because that's how those tools were designed to work. In the hand tool world, things don't quite work that way. 
Um, if you were to ever take apart a piece of old furniture, you would find that the bottom of the mortise is not smooth at all because it just doesn't matter. So what I would say is first, don't worry so much about it because it's probably not that important. Um, I have not installed the um, benchcrafted hardware. I've never used it before. So um, I don't know how perfectly smooth the bottom of that mortise needs to be, but I'm guessing it doesn't need to be that smooth. It probably needs to be level where the hardware fits in just so that everything fits at the right um, at the right level. I did look at the instructions once and I think it gets pinned from the side. So I would say that most of the, um, that bearing pressure is going to be on those pins that hold the crisscross mechanism in place. The crisscross mechanism itself, as far as I'm aware, isn't really going to be, uh, holding that much, that much weight. I mean, I guess that the pins, those cross pins are going to be holding some pressure. But uh, I'm not aware that the mechanism actually gets, if it gets screwed to the bottom of the mortise or not. Um, if it doesn't, if it really just gets those pins through the side to hold it in place and, and that's it, the steel pins, then I wouldn't worry about the bottom of the mortise at all. Um, it's not something you're ever going to see because it's going to be behind the vice chop all the time. Um, and if it doesn't matter to the structural integrity of the vice hardware itself, then I wouldn't worry about it. Just get it as smooth and as level as you can, you know, using a Forstner bit to hog out most of the material of that mortise, um, you know, will get you to the right depth that you need and it will get you fairly consistent in depth. Um, and I would probably leave the bottom with the Forstner bit marks and not worried about it. Um, if it does, if you do need to actually flatten that bottom of the mortise because the hardware actually attaches to the bottom and it needs to be perfectly level, what I would consider is just one, just focusing on the areas where it's going to attach um, and making sure they're all in the same plane. You know, it it might be a little bit easier to do that than it would be to try and level, perfectly level the whole bottom of the mortise. But essentially, I would set a combination square to the depth that that mortise needs to be. Um, and I would use a chisel bevel down to lightly pair the bottom of the mortise uh, until it was flat and smooth. Um, checking all the time with the with the combination square, using it as a depth gauge to make sure that everything's flat and square and to the same level. It's not going to be as simple as using a router plane, but it, um, with a mortise the size that you need for the crisscross mechanism, it's a really, really long mortise. So you shouldn't have any problem being able to get in there with a bevel down chisel um, and just you know kind of pair the bottom of that um, of that mortise clean. If that isn't working for you, you could always make a custom scraper um, just by, you know, cutting a piece of saw steel or, or an old card scraper to size to fit into that mortise, um, you know, file a, a hook, a file and, and burnish a hook on the narrow end that would fit down in that mortise and you could scrape the bottom. Um, but, you know, unless it's absolutely necessary for mounting purposes for the hardware, which again, I don't know that it is because I think that hardware just mounts with pins that are driven through the, the side of the leg. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about getting that mortise perfectly level because it probably doesn't matter. So our last question comes from John Bates. John says, I enjoyed the discussion on plane iron cambering. For jack planes, you mentioned that you use a grinder to establish the camber. For honing, is that strictly done by hand with this much camber, or is it possible to hone with an eclipse style guide? I generally use a guide for honing plain irons, but I'm not sure how well that would work with a heavily cambered iron. So John, for the, the four plane camber that I use, the eclipse style will, will work. Um, you are going to have to make sure you put pressure on the outer corners of the iron, and you're basically going to be running the the eclipse style guide on the corner of the wheel, but it will work. When you get into things like scrub planes, which I don't use, I've mentioned that in previous podcasts, um, those irons have so much camber on them. It's like it, uh, grinding or honing a scrub plane iron is like honing the iron for um, a molding plane, a hollow, uh, a round ironed molding plane. It's a very, very significant camber, way more than what you would have on a four plane. Um, so 
in those cases, if you're honing like a scrub plane, you're probably going to have to do that freehand. I, I haven't found a, a jig that will um, put that much camber. Maybe the Veritas, the second version, the Mark II, with the camber roller that they offer. But I don't know that I would go and spend that much money on a honing guide and a camber roller um, just so that I could hone a scrub plane iron because, um, you know, scrub plane isn't a fine plane anyway. Um, you really don't need a super fine edge on it. Uh, it doesn't need to be that precise. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, and I certainly wouldn't invest in the in such an expensive honing guide for just that one iron. But if you already had that uh, honing guide, the camber roller might, I don't know for sure, but it might allow you to do scrub planes. But the Eclipse-style guide should work just fine for honing the camber that you would put on a four plane. We're not talking about a lot of camber here, probably no more than a 16th of an inch drop from the center of the iron to the corner. Um, and you should be able to, um, to put enough pressure on the iron where you can hone that using the Eclipse style guide. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is one that I've, I've managed to avoid since starting the podcast, uh, but I thought it was probably about time that I talked about sharpening. Now, I don't know any other topic in woodworking that elicits stronger opinions than the topic of sharpening. Um, you talk to any experienced woodworker, and they all have their own chosen method, and they'll all swear that their method is the best. Um, but the truth of the matter is that every method is really the best for some people in some situations. Uh, but there's a lot of factors that go into making a particular sharpening system the best for each person. So my goal with the discussion today is not to tell you the best system because what's best for me may not necessarily be best for you. Instead, I want to talk about some of the most popular systems of sharpening and let you know what I've observed to be their pros and cons based upon my use of them. But I should be clear, I have not used every single sharpening system available on the market. There are literally dozens of different sharpening systems. I have not used them all. Um, but I have used a good number of them. So what I'm going to do is I'm only going to talk about the systems that I have experience with because it's not fair for me to judge uh, any particular system that I haven't used. If I haven't used a particular system, therefore, I won't be mentioning it, mentioning it at all and I won't give an opinion of it. So with all that said, let's start by talking about the different systems that I have used. Now, over the years, I've, I've used a lot of different sharpening systems, a lot of different sharpening media um, for various reasons. Um, it, some of it had to do with um, economy and, and the, the money that I had at the time. Some of it, sometimes it had to do with tradition. Sometimes it had to do with the tools that I was using. Um, and, and then other times it was just about experimenting. So, um, you know, I've had experience with everything from sandpaper style honing to <clears throat> water stones, oil stones, diamond stones. Uh, I use different types of strops, high speed grinders, wet grinders. So I, I have used a lot of these different systems. Um, but I like to break my sharpening down into, into a couple of different types of tasks. Specifically, shaping an edge versus honing an edge. Um, and there are different tools. You can use the same types of tools and the same types of systems for both shaping edges and honing edges. But there are distinct advantages and disadvantages to doing so. So let's first talk about shaping an edge versus honing an edge. Um, if you grind a chisel, if, if you uh, drop a chisel on a concrete floor or you're chiseling through a piece of wood and you hit a hidden nail or uh, a, a really piece of, you know, um, hard knot or something like that, and the edge of your chisel chips, that chisel does not need to be honed. That chisel needs to be completely reshaped. 
And there are a lot of different ways that you can do that. You can use a grinder. You can use a wet wheel. You can just use coarse stones um, to do that reshaping. But if when, when we're not just refining the edge and making it sharp enough to work with, if we have to remove any significant amount of steel, I don't refer to that as, as a honing process. That's shaping an edge. Um, and I use different tools for shaping than I do for honing. And it all comes down for me to speed. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. In terms of honing, now we're getting down to just refining the edge and making it sharper and sharper and sharper. We're not changing the edge's geometry at all. We're not removing any significant amount of metal. All we're doing is taking that edge that we've shaped using our coarsest media and we're polishing it and we're refining it and getting rid of all the scratches to make it sharp enough to shave wood with. So when it comes to shaping, you've got a couple of different choices. Um, and I, I have done most of these. Um, you can use coarse abrasives by hand, either with a guide or without a guide. Um, and when I refer to coarse abrasives, you know, I'm referring to things like, um, you know, 80 or 120 grit sandpaper, um, extra, extra or extra, extra coarse diamond plates, um, 220 grit or rough, roughly, you know, 120 to 220 grit water stones. Or um, if you use oil stones, you know, coarse crystalline or coarse India stones, really, really coarse um, oil stones, the, uh, the man-made type. If you use those types of uh, abrasives, those by hand, typically you're going to be using some type of guide. You can do it totally by hand without any type of honing guide at all. Um, if you have a steady hand and you can maintain that geometry without a honing guide on those coarse abrasives, more power to you. Um, it's not something that I typically do uh, because I, I, I can freehand hone just fine. But when it comes to reshaping an edge, I like to use, I like a little bit more um, guidance. So if I'm going to reshape an edge on a diamond plate or on a coarse oil stone, or sandpaper, I'll use a, a honing guide for that. Um, my preference when I'm reshaping is a high-speed grinder. That's what I use these days. It's what I've been using for, oh, I don't know, at least the, the last 15, 20 years. Um, they're fast. They're with a, with a good tool rest. They're accurate. Um, if you keep the wheel dressed, they're, they run cool. You don't have to, you know, you, you do have to... Uh, watch the edges and watch the heat that builds up, but I haven't burnt the edge of a tool since I started learning how to use the grinder. So uh, I've been using a high-speed grinder for, you know, 15, 20 years to grind the edges of plain irons and chisels. And, um, you know, some folks still criticize that, that, you know, I'm hurting my tools, but I've never, I haven't burnt the edge of a tool um, and drawn the temper from the edge of a tool in, in a long time. I can't remember the last time I did. So that's my preference today because they're really fast. Um, you can also use slow speed wet grinders. Uh, and I'm talking things like the Tormek um, and, and the clones that are out there of the Tormek. Um, they work great, you know, if you're willing to put in the time that it takes to use them. They are extremely, extremely slow when it comes to reshaping tasks. Um, the last time I used a slow speed wet grinder of that style and to grind out you know, the chip out of a edge of a tool and maintain the same bevel angle, you know, without, without steepening the bevel angle. Um, you know, I think it took, you know, 20, 25 minutes to grind that edge down and, and take that chip out. So they, you invest a significant amount of time in reshaping with those slow speed wet grinders, but it's an option. And then you don't have to worry about burning the edge of your tools ever um, with those type of machines. Um, and then there are also traditional sandstone grindstones. Um, I used to use these in the, uh, the museum shop that I used to volunteer at. And the one that we had kind of took two people to work because it, it didn't work so well. It was the foot treadle was kind of broken. So, uh, typically we had one person spin the grindstone and the other would, uh, would grind the tool. 
Um, and we didn't have a tool rest on that grindstone, so you kind of had to grind freehand, truly freehand, just by holding the edge of the tool against the uh, the sandstone grinding wheel. Um, and they work. Again, they don't work fast. They are similar to slow-speed wet grinders. Um, it will take you quite some time. Um, and, of course, one of the disadvantages in, in those uh, large traditional sandstone grinding wheels is uh, finding one in decent shape. Usually there's, you know, lawn ornaments or something like that, and the wheels aren't round anymore. And actually truing the wheels on those big old sandstone grindstones is uh, is a, a, a task in itself that could take you weeks to do. So, um, you know, I, I don't typically use those except in, in that museum setting. But uh, as I mentioned, my preference is for a high-speed grinder just because it's it's the fastest method and I get good results doing it. In terms of honing, there are a lot of different options, um, and I'll go through the different ones that, that I've used. Um, and really what I just want to do is just talk about the pros and cons. I'm not going to recommend any one system over the other um, because... One system may be better for you than another, depending on the types of tools you use. You know, if you use traditional cast steel or uh, or O1 steel tools, one system might work just fine for you. Whereas if you're, you know, if you typically use um, the more modern steels that are being sold today, um, you may need to use a more modern sharpening media in order to cut those steels efficiently. So. Um, Again, I'm just going to go through the pros and cons as I see them, and I'll let you make your decisions what you're going to use on your own um, based on the types of tools that you use and, uh, and your, you know, your budget, etc. So sandpaper or, or micro-abrasive film, whatever it's being called these days, I have used that. I started out using it um, because it's cheap. It, it's a very inexpensive way to get into sharpening and if you're just getting started with woodworking and you've got some chisels you've got some hand plane irons that need sharpening um, and you're on a very limited budget um, it, you know it can be a hard pill to swallow to spend a couple hundred dollars on sharpening stones but when you can go to the hardware store and get a few different grits of sandpaper and uh, and a tile you know a couple of floor tiles um, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money to get into a decent sharpening system. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll actually probably do a blog post on that coming up um, or, or a video or something on uh, on creating, you know, one of these simple sharpening systems that way. But so, you know, that's that's the primary pro of of the um, primary advantage of the sandpaper system is that it's cheap to get started. The very low initial cost. Um, there are a lot of different grits to choose from. You don't need to use every single grit, um, but there are a lot of grits in sandpaper. You can start as coarse as 40 or 60 grit for grinding or, you know, 80 grit for quote-unquote grinding. Um, and you can get papers all the way up to, you know, 2,000 grit or more from auto parts stores and places like that. And if you order it from woodworking suppliers, the microfilms, you know, you can get into papers that are a half a micron particle size. So um, every bit as fine as the finest of of uh, uh, sharpening stones. Um, sandpaper can be used wet or dry in most cases. So, you know, with most stones, you need some type of, I'll call it a lubricant, but it's not really a lubricant. Um, but they either need to be, you know, soaked or spritzed with water or soaked or spritzed or, or, or um, coated with oil in order to use them. So you don't need that with sandpaper. You can. You can use a lot of them wet, but you can also sharpen dry with sandpaper, and that's a big advantage, um, especially if you're traveling with your tools and you need to bring some sharpening media with you. You know, a, a piece of uh, floor tile with, some, with a few sheets of uh, sandpaper used dry, and you can get a a perfectly good edge. Um, sandpaper is also easily used for shaped edges. If you've got gouges, if you've got carving tools, you can wrap that sandpaper around a dowel or a piece of wood that you've carved or, or shaped to match the profile of the tools, and you'll have essentially a, a stone, a slip stone, 
that is perfectly shaped to match the edge of the tool that you're honing. So huge advantage there of using sandpaper is that you have you can basically custom make a stone, custom make a hone for you know whatever tool it is, whatever shape that tool is, whether it's an in-canal gouge, an out-canal gouge, a molding plane, whatever. Um, and by using sandpaper, you can custom make a hone just for that particular tool. The disadvantages of the sandpaper system, um, long-term it gets expensive because the sandpaper wears out quickly and you constantly have to replace it. Um, and you may think, well, it's not that expensive, you know, to replace the sandpaper. But if you do any decent amount of sharpening, the expense does add up over time. And, you know, over a couple of years of using sandpaper for sharpening, you may spend a couple hundred dollars on sandpaper just for your sharpening chores. So, you know, if you do woodworking for three or four years, all of a sudden you may be at or or exceeding the expense of a set of stones. So just something to think about, um, you know, long-term. Um, dubbing of edges is another common problem. Um, sandpaper needs to be adhered firmly to a flat surface. If it is not adhered to, you know, perfectly to that flat surface, you can get what is known as dubbing or rounding over of the edges. What happens is the paper buckles right ahead of the edge as you're sanding and that buckling of the paper causes the edge to round over so you don't get truly sharp edges you get rounded edges um, and that's a problem especially with the coarser papers and the big problem is if it happens with the coarser papers you will never get that dubbing out with the finer papers that tend to stay flat a little better so you really need to make sure that your your paper is adhered well to the flat surface um, Tearing during use is, is a problem. You know, if you're honing, um, it's very easy to cut into the paper or tear the paper, and then you've got to take it all off, clean the adhesive off, and, and glue a new piece of paper down. Um, so it's just really a, an inconvenience when that happens, um, unless you've run out of paper and that was your last piece, and then it can be, you know, a bit more of a problem because then you've got to go out and get more. So, um, yeah, that, you know, tearing can be an issue, especially with smaller chisels. Um, you know, if you've got a little eighth inch or quarter inch chisel, it can be very easy to uh, put a little bit too much pressure on the paper and tear it or cut into it while you're working uh, on your sharpening. Uh, and sandpaper is also difficult to freehand. Again, and this comes down to adhering the paper to the flat surface and, um, and the tearing issue. Um, I've never had a lot of luck honing freehand on sandpaper. So if I use sandpaper, well, except for... Um, shape tools, um, you know, if I'm, I'm wrapping sandpaper around a dowel or something like that. But in those cases, I'm always honing off the edge, um, not not against the edge, if that makes any sense. So there's really no risk of um, cutting into the sandpaper because I'm not honing in a direction that the uh, the chisel or the gouge or whatever is going to actually cut into the paper. Um, so that's sandpaper. So the, the next system that I used after I went to sandpaper is I went to water stones. Uh, my first set of water stones was a set of Norton combination stones. Two stones, uh, one was 220 on one side and 1,000 grit on the other. The other was 4,000 grit on one side and 8,000 grit on the other. Um, and with water stones, I should preface this by saying that the grit systems are not consistent from one manufacturer to another. So an 8,000 grit Norton is not necessarily the same thing as an 8,000 grit Shapton or an 8,000 grit Sigma or an 8,000 grit name your brand. Um, it is not a mesh size like you will get in sandpaper. It's a totally different system. And when we say 8,000 grit in a water stone, that's not the same as an 8,000 grit in a diamond plate, for example. So it, it starts to get really fuzzy when we start looking at grit numbers. So don't pay a whole lot of attention. I'm, I'm going to try not even to talk about grit numbers um, per se, because they don't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, if you decide to go with water stones or diamonds, just, you know, look within that manufacturer's um, that manufacturers grit sizes and look at the micron sizes. That's probably more accurate than looking at what they call their grits. But anyway, 
I went to the Norton Waterstones um, after Sandpaper, um, and and I thought they were great stones. They were the combination stones were not too expensive, but they're still not cheap. Um, but Waterstones, the you know the advantages of Waterstones, they cut really fast. Um, there are a lot of different styles of Waterstones. Again, you can get a lot of different grits, and if you get into the Japanese-made stones, you have a lot of options in grits typically. Um, one of the best, the, the biggest advantages of the water stones is that they work really well for modern steels, especially the newer water stones. Um, the old, you know, mud-based, clay-based stones like the King brands, they're okay on the modern steels. But the, uh, the more modern stones, the Nortons, the Sigmas, the Shaptons work really, really well on the modern, you know, the A2 and the D2 and the PMV11 and all these new steels, um, the modern water stones work really, really well on those. Um, on the on the downside, water stones can be really expensive. I mean, you can easily spend $150 or more for a single stone. Um, and a single stone is not going to do the job. You know, you're going to need probably at least three. Uh, and some people even go for more intermediate grits um, and might use four or five stones. So... Um, you know, water stone systems can get very expensive. Um, they also tend to go out of flat very quickly. Even the ones that don't claim to go out of flat very quickly, still, relative to other types of sharpening media, they still go out of flat fairly quickly. So they need to be flattened frequently. I typically flatten my water stones with every use, and that keeps them from getting so out of flat that I need to spend a lot of time flattening them. Uh, but it's just something to keep in mind. If you're the type of person that rather than sharpening um, as your tools need it, save all your tools, you know, let them get dull and just use a different chisel until that one gets dull and then use a different chisel and save all your sharpening for, you know, the end of the month or whatever. And then do this marathon sharpening session where you might spend two or three or four hours sharpening lots of different tools. You're going to do a lot of flattening of your stones in order to keep them flat because they're going to go out of flat relatively quickly, um, especially in those marathon sharpening sessions. So something to keep in mind with water stones. Um, some of them may need to be soaked. There are, you know, the Nortons need to be soaked. There are certain other modern brands that, um, may not necessarily need to be soaked for long, but they do need to be soaked in water before you use them. Um, the old clay-based stones from, you know, like the King stones, they needed to be soaked for a good 10, 15 minutes before you use them. Um, some of them you can just spritz with water, but but many of them still need a, a good soaking or do better with a good soaking first. So you have to consider that if you're going to sharpen your tools Consider that soaking time or, you know, or whether or not you can just leave the stones in water, soaking in water all the time. Uh, water stones tend to be messy. Um, the grit wears away quickly. You get a slurry on the surface of the stone. Your tools get slurry and clay all over them. Uh, your hands will get slurry and clay all over them. Your sharpening bench will get slurry and clay all over it. So, um, you know, it is a messy process working with water stones. Um, and then if you have curved tools and you decide to try to use some slip stones or shaped water stones to sharpen curved tools like gouges and molding planes, those water stone slip stones tend to lose their shape very quickly. So you're constantly having to reshape the stones so that they don't go out of round or, or, uh, or whatever. So um, it's, water stone slip stones are not particularly, um, I'm not particularly fond of them myself. So after the water stones, uh, I went to oil stones. When I switched to oil stones about 15 years ago, I was getting more into the traditional aspect of the craft, and I was really into old tools, um, old furniture, old methods. So I got a set of oil stones so that I could use them on my cast steel antique tools. And they work great. Um, you know, they stay flat longer than water stones, although they will go out of flat, they tend to stay flat longer than water stones. They, they work very well for traditional steels, plenty fast enough for traditional O1 and, and cast steel. Um, 
They're not as messy as water stones. You just add a little bit of oil and you're good to go. Um, they they tend to hold their shape. The slip stones, if you use slip stones for sharpening gouges, um, they they do tend to hold their shape. They don't really lose their shape like a water stone slip will. Um, and they are generally less expensive than water stones, although that seems to be changing a little bit. On the downside, oil stones are harder to flatten. They will go out of flat with extended use um, if you are not careful. They can be flattened, but they are much more difficult to flatten. You're going to need to flatten them with a diamond plate or something really hard um, in order to flatten an oil stone. Um, they can be flattened, and if you keep them flattened by you know rubbing them with a diamond stone regularly, um, it's unlikely that they'll ever go so out of flat that you, you really have to spend a marathon session flattening them. But they can go out of flat, um, and if they get severely dished or severely out of flat, um, it's almost easier to just throw the stone away and get a new one rather than trying to flatten it because they're so hard that even with a diamond, uh, it could be one heck of a chore trying to flatten a dished oil stone. Um, they are very slow on modern steels, and some of them have trouble cutting modern steels, period. Um, I have sharpened A2 on oil stones, and... For me, it was not an enjoyable process. Um, they just they don't cut modern steels very fast, especially A2 because A2 is a very abrasive, resistant steel. So the oil stones just did not work very well for me on A2. Um, good ones are not really cheap. So this is where you know what I was mentioning before how how that inexpensiveness might be changing um, when you get into man-made oil stones. India stones, crystalline stones, which are essentially just Norton's brand names for their aluminum oxide and silicon carbide stones, they're very cheap. However, when you get into natural oil stones, natural Arkansas stones, um, Washita stones, soft Arkansas, hard Arkansas, black Arkansas, translucent Arkansas, these stones are getting more and more expensive uh, every day because the the uh, the supply is getting scarce. It's getting very hard um, to find good quality natural Arkansas stones anymore. The this, the quarries are simply running out of stone, um, good stone. Um, so it's getting difficult to find them. You can still get good quality Arkansas stones from places like uh, Dan's Whetstone, but as I mentioned, they're starting to get more and more expensive every day because the supply is just getting scarce. And, you know, when the supply goes down, the prices go up. So, um, Finally, the, the last type of, of stones that I've used are diamond stones. And like the other sharpening media, these have their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, they will, for the most part, stay flat indefinitely. I mean, most diamond stones, the, the ones I've used are the DMT I think they're called Diasharp. They're the continuous diamond, not the ones with the plastic, but the uh, the aluminum plates. Um, they, for the most part, will stay flat in depth indefinitely. It's just a milled aluminum plate, so uh, unless the plate warps, uh, they should pretty much stay flat indefinitely. Um, when they're new, they cut very quickly, um, and they can, just like sandpaper, they can be used wet or dry, although most people tend to prefer to uh, put some type of water or, or something on them. Um, and they also work very well on modern steels. The problem that I found with them is that they tend to lose their aggressiveness pretty quickly. And I don't know the science behind this, but what I believe is happening is that when you get the diamond plates, the diamond dust that's on them has some nice sharp points to it. But because the diamonds are so brittle, as you start to use the stone, the very sharp points wear away very quickly. They kind of chip off and break off and wear away. And then what you're left with is these these pieces of diamond that are sort of rounded over. So they tend to lose their aggressiveness. Um, they still cut. They just don't cut quite as quickly as they did when they were new. Um, and the other fine thing that I found with them is that the, the highest grits that they come in typically aren't quite fine enough for that final polish. So most people that use diamond stones tend to use some type of strop or, or 
something that is charged with honing compound after the highest grade of diamond stone. So um, in most cases, diamond stones alone are not getting you to your final edge. Um, and they can be pretty expensive in the larger sizes as well, especially when you start to get into the really um, the high grits. I would say they they compare price-wise with, uh, with decent water stones. Um, and then there are other things that, you know, that you can add to your sharpening system, things like leather straps. Um, you know, these are typically used for final edge polishing. Uh, if you've ever used a strop or seen a strop, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that you, it's not something you're going to use for um, initial honing or removing any amounts of steel. They are, the leather is usually used, can be used with honing compound or without. A lot of people use it with honing compound. Um, and they're really used for the final polishing and final refinement of that edge just to make it a bit more durable. Uh, you do want to use a very firm leather for a strop. Soft leathers don't work so well because they tend to um, they tend to dub or round over the edge, especially if you're using honing compound with them, um, if the leather is too soft or if you use too much pressure. So you want to be careful on the leather strop not to push down too, too hard because that leather can flex and it can dub over or round over the edge of your tool. Uh, some people don't like leather because they feel it's too soft and they're afraid of that dubbing, so they will use wood for a strop. Um, again, it's for final edge polishing for the most part. Um, and you need to use a honing compound if you're going to use a wooden strop. And, and harder woods are going to be better, things like maple. Some things are woods that are harder and have tighter grain, things like maple and birch um, are going to work the best. Um, they don't flex like leather, so they, you kind of eliminate that dubbing problem if you just use a piece of wood with some honing compound uh, rubbed on it. But you need to make sure that piece of wood is nice and flat. Um, the other thing I think we should talk about is probably the uh, freehand honing versus using a honing guide. Um, there are those who will, uh, the proponents of freehand honing who will, who will swear that you should never use a honing guide and you should do everything freehand um, and that if you don't hone freehand or can't hone freehand that you are less of a, a woodworker because of it. Um, there are others who will swear that you should use a honing guide because if you hone freehand, um, you're just not getting your edge as perfect as it could be. And the only way to get repeatable, uh, precise results is to use a honing guide. Um, me, I don't care either way. I do both. I use a honing guide. Sometimes I hone freehand. Sometimes the majority of the time I probably hone freehand. Um, but when I get into thinner blades, especially... Now, you know, with the old, with my wooden planes, I typically hone freehand because the blades are so nice and thick. It's very easy to find that edge. With the thinner blades that you find on the metal hand planes, um, even the new thinner blades that are, are quote unquote thicker than the original Stanleys, um, they're still pretty thin um, and it can be a little bit more difficult to find that edge and balance the blade on the edge. So sometimes I'll use a honing guide with those if I'm uh, just not feeling like taking my time if I really just want to hone real quickly. Um, you know, so I will sometimes use a honing guide with that. And, uh, but you know, anything curved, I will typically do freehand, but I don't really care. You know, it doesn't make a difference to me and it shouldn't make a difference to anyone really, but, um, which way you go, whether you favor honing guides or honing freehand, both of them will work. Both of them have, both methods have their proponents. Um, you know, the, the main, drawback that I see to honing guides is that you really can't use them for curved tools, things like molding plane, irons, gouges, carving tools. Um, you're not really going to be able to use a honing guide for those. So if you plan to use any tools like that, it would definitely benefit you to learn to hone freehand. And then if, as long as you are able to do so, if you want to use a honing guide for all the tools that you can use a honing guide for, by all means, go ahead. Um, but, you know, for tools like gouges and molding planes and things like that, um, it would certainly be to your benefit to learn to be able to hone freehand because for most of those tools, that is the only way that you're going to be able to do it. So the last thing I want to talk about is combining systems because that's what I think most people these days are doing. 
my system these days is back to water stones. Um, I, I am not using my oil stones anymore. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm not using my oil stone bench stones anymore uh, because a lot of the steel that I'm using these days is the more modern steels, and those old oil stones just didn't work all that well. I still have a lot of cast steel tools as well, but I don't want to have two separate sets of stones, you know, oil stones for the cast steel stuff and water stones for the newer steels. So I decided to just go back to the water stones for my bench stones um, because they work fine for the traditional steels as well as the more modern tool steels. Um, where I do change things up a little bit is with my coarse stone. So I still use a, a grinder for reshaping, but I do have a coarse diamond stone that I use for if I have to lap the back or the face of a tool, the flat side of a tool, I will use the diamond stone for that because water stones, coarse water stones are just too soft and they wear too quickly. So I prefer the diamond stone for uh, the initial lapping of the back of a blade. Uh, I also use the diamond stone for flattening the water stones. And then when it comes to sharpening my curve tools, gouges, alcano gouges, in-cano gouges, carving tools, molding plain irons, things of that sort. I prefer, I still prefer the um, oil stone slip stones because they hold their shape. So I have a set of soft and I have a set of hard oil stone slip stones. And that's what I use to hone my molding planes and my in-cano gouges and my carving tools with. Uh, because those tools typically are not being manufactured from the new high-tech steels. They're still being manufactured either if you've got old ones, they're cast steel. If you've got newer ones, they're typically O1 steel still. So uh, they sharpen up just fine with the oil stones. So that's what I'm using today. And I think that's what most people are doing is, is combining systems in some way. Um, and I still have leather straps as well. So I hope that helped. I know it was more of a rambling of the, the pros and cons of the different systems. But again, it's not was not my intention to recommend a system for you, but more just to give you the overview of the different systems that I've used um, in case you're new to the craft and you're not sure which direction you want to go. Or maybe you're not happy with your current system for one reason or another. Um, so I figure providing my experience at least might uh, be worthwhile. Again, I don't think any one system is better than another. I think it really comes down to your own personal preferences, the, the way you like to sharpen, the types of tools and the types of steel that you like to use, um, your your influence, you know, the, of traditional craft, you know, whether you like to be very traditional or whether you're into, you know, all the, the most up-to-date and most modern stuff, you know, whatever. So everyone's going to have their own preference. The most important thing is once you choose a system or, or combination of systems that you're going to use is to learn to use it well and get good at it and don't jump around and start changing you're sharpening stones and changing your media thinking that, you know, it's another system that's going to make your sharpening better. Every one of these systems will work and they are all capable of making the tools that we use razor sharp and capable of doing very good woodworking. So if you can't get a good edge on your tools with the system you're currently using, Switching systems isn't going to help you. Switching systems may help you to sharpen faster. For example, if you're using oil stones, but you're using A2 and PMV11 steels, well, switching to water stones might help you get the job done faster, but it's not going to make your edges any better. You can get just as good edges using oil stones and a strop on those steels as you can with water stones. It just might take you a little bit longer to get there. So instead, if you're having trouble, make sure you really you understand how to sharpen first. Get good at sharpening with what you have and then understand what the benefits of different sharpening media 
what, how that may benefit you in your work. And I think that's going to be way more important because ultimately it comes down to just getting a sharp tool um, and putting that tool back to work. It's really not sharpening is not the end goal. The end goal is the woodworking. So uh, don't fret too much over your sharpening. Get good at whatever system you choose um, and get back to work. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt033. In the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.